You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Seth. Hey, Rob. Great to be with you. How are you? I'm great. Good to have you. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You are Seth Harp, a, uh, I guess, war correspondent. Is that a fair way to describe your profession? That's fair, yes. You're uh, a journalist. You're also a, a, an army veteran. You served in Iraq. Um, you're also a lawyer. You were uh, on the attorney general staff in Texas. There where you are. Uh, you're, you're an assistant. You were an assistant attorney general uh, for Texas. And uh, unlike most Americans who are trying to figure out what's going on in the Ukraine war, you've actually been there. Um, you... Uh, you know, you're an independent journalist. You've written for various places, New Yorker, uh, Harper's, Daily Beast, The Intercept. Um, but you and, and you've also reported from Syria, I gather. And I, I hope to get into that. Uh, but most recently, uh, you went to Ukraine, did a long piece for Harper's uh, early in the war, kind of on your search uh, for the Foreign Legion, so to speak. Right. I uh, tried to, you, you know, we, we had all heard about these people who were flocking to Ukraine. Um, from various countries to help out, and and you tried to uh, figure out what, if anything, was actually going on in that front, and we'll talk about that as well. Um, and then you did a piece very recently for Responsible Statecraft that I definitely want to talk about, because you're arguing that there are some pretty widespread misperceptions about the state of the war, especially in the wake of the dramatic Ukrainian gains in northeastern Ukraine, uh, a bit over a month ago, I guess. In the wake of that, you wrote a piece saying, uh, don't don't get your hopes up about some kind of imminent Ukrainian victory. I want to talk about all that. But first, I just want to get into the question of kind of what it's like to be in Ukraine during the war, as opposed to what it's like to read about it from America. Because it, I'm having, uh, all along, I've had real trouble trying to get a clear sense of what's going on. And so I guess I, I'd, this is a, maybe an unfairly uh, open-ended question that I didn't warn you about, but like what, aside from the, the misperception I alluded to about the current strategic situation, what would you say are some kind of misperceptions you encounter when you come back to America about the war or some 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 general things about the war its texture anything about it that you think kind of aren't coming through in the media i'll have to break that question up into two parts because my answers would be a bit contradictory um in 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 separate ways so for for one thing you know one of the most uh, salient uh, things i noticed about being in ukraine and reporting in ukraine from a professional perspective as a journalist is that although you do get a more visceral sense of it, and of course, you're more aware of things that are happening than you would be while you're just at home. I had the experience being there of feeling more cut off from uh, live information than I ever have felt in another war zone. So you mentioned Syria or Iraq, to take another example, or in Mexico, I've worked extensively there. Uh, only in Ukraine did I feel as if um, I really couldn't get to uh, really the bleeding edge of, of the action, uh, for lack of a better term. And uh, it's interesting, I was just watching some, um, some news reports last night uh, coming out of the Kherson Offensive, and the reporter was a reporter from DW News, um, 
the, 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 I don't know, big German uh, uh, news organization, uh, very much a pro uh, NATO, pro Western news organization. However, the reporter Nick Connolly did mention, you know, at the end of his report, you know, this big, he was talking about the Ukrainians had liberated this village and had liberated that village and were pressing forward in this direction and that direction. And then, you know, he's reporting from Kiev and he says at the end of it, you know, here's a big caveat here is that this information is reaching us a day or two late uh, in very limited doses. And he said, we're actually getting more information from Russian bloggers than we are getting from the mm-hmm. Ukrainian side because they're very good at keeping shtum, he said. I had to look up that word, which apparently means dumb or uh, mute in, Russia, in, uh, in German. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was precisely the experience that I had as well. Uh, and I, you know, I respected him for disclosing that information, which American correspondents usually um, leave out, which is to say almost everything that they're reporting is coming directly from the Ukrainian military command. And they're not actually witnessing it from the front lines. And, you know, it's interesting, like just as Vietnam was the first war that was uh, televised, so television audiences really saw Vietnam for the first time and appreciated its horrors viscerally. Ukraine is kind of the sort of anti-polar historical milestone to this. It's this other weird historical development where it's the first war to be sort of de-televised, where it's the first war where we really don't see any major, any real footage from the major battles. Hmm. And it's all being conducted a bit in the dark, like, like you, you know, you're talking about your inability to get a real sense of what's happening. I mean, I think that's very much by design. There are not good numbers on casualties. There's not good numbers on troop numbers. Uh, there's not uh, good statistics or good information on the on the placement of various units and where they're faced off with other units and the movement from day to day. Um, but that being said, it appears that uh, you know over the last couple of days there's been relatively minimal movement, if any, in the in the Kherson uh, region. So that's to answer your question about yeah, the first thing. First part. Yeah, the um, so there's nothing comparable to what happened, say, in the Iraq War with embedded reporters. I gather is that where where the military, you know, and that, of course, has its own, you might say, corrupting influence on information because the reporters are they're with the soldiers. They're dependent on them for staying alive. Right. And I'm sure that changes your relationship uh, to, you know, put you in something other than a completely objective uh, position. But still, they were they were they were there in a lot of cases, right? And and you're saying there isn't really much that's comparable to that in Ukraine? Not really. There are, of course, lots of videos that come out, a lot of cell phone footage, um, but it's all very fragmented and hard to put together in a sort of comprehensive sweeping. I mean, you don't have a sort of cinematic um, experience of the war that would be easily technologically uh, available if if the Ukrainian or the Russian side allowed that to happen. But they're they're keeping a very, very tight control over information. And this war, distinct from any other war that I've seen. Yeah. I mean, it's always the case with war that you shouldn't completely trust either side. Uh, you know, like famously, I think during Vietnam, America kind of tended to inflate the casualty counts of the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong and so on. Um, and sometimes it's more egregious than others. But Ukraine... Uh, I'm not aware of this happening before. They adopted a policy from the beginning of just not talking about casualties on their side, right? And I gather that's still the policy. So it's not like you there's something to doubt. Even they're just they're just refusing to talk about the subject. Is that right? That's right. Which is crazy that we don't have any uh, conception of how many people are dying for these various you know political priorities. 
Mm-hmm. And let me uh, ask you whether I'm too cynical about one thing, which is that there have been the exceptions to uh, that, that I recall to the difficulty I've been having getting a sense for casualties on the Ukrainian side. For that matter, on the Russian side, uh, I, I should add. Uh, but um, the, the, the recent exceptions have to do with a couple of reporters from major outlets. In one case, I know the Washington Post, maybe both, uh, who were allowed to visit hospitals and interview uh, troops who had been wounded. And, and I, I will say, you know, uh, they reported that in both cases, they, they got what is probably the most important thing out there up front. The Ukrainian casualties are heavy in the Kherson area. This one, this one case was about Kherson. And, and that's useful to know. But I did notice in both cases, um, if you read the story, there was there was always a quote from a soldier saying, if we had more weapons from the West, we wouldn't be dying like this. And I wondered, and, and that's a perfectly fine thing. But what I wondered is, you know, often there's an implicit uh, or sometimes explicit even uh, bargain between reporters and their sources. Right. So you see this with American reporters from big time outlets who regularly cover, say, uh, national security establishment or whatever. They're dependent on leaks and they know that if they're going to keep getting the leaks, they need to sometimes shape things the way the leak, the, the leaking agency wants them shaped. Right. I mean, that's like just a known dynamic. Mm-hmm. Do you think I'm too cynical in thinking that a, a little of that was was uh, going on here? Uh, no, I don't think that's too cynical. You hear that in every single communication that comes out of the Ukrainian side. They're very disciplined in their message, which is give us more munitions, give us more military technology, give us more arms. And there's a perfect confluence of interest usually between the media companies that are covering this um, because they will say that of their of, of their own volition. I mean, it's a sort of drumbeat that they re- re- repeat constantly. I mean, when, when I was at a press conference with President Zelensky, deep in this underground structure in Kyiv, um, there was a, there were- Was, it, was a, this early in the war, by the way? Early in the war, this was in April. So he, he was, so he was in Kyiv uh, at, at that point you were there. So sorry, go ahead. Sure, I don't know if he was in there any length of time. He may have been whisked there. The security was very, very high. It was yeah. extraordinary. But um, the, there was a ton of reporters assembled all asking him questions. And it was amazing that I, I found that the, that the American reporters, one after another, raised their hand and asked exactly the same question, even though it had been asked already by the other American reporters, which was, are you getting enough weapons from the United States? Do you need more weapons? How many more weapons do you need? Uh, what kind of weapons can we give you? Can you please paint people a very, very scary picture of what will happen if we stop sending you weapons? <laughs> Did they actually utter that last sentence? I mean, that, that must, surely that was subtext, right? <laughs> that was subtext, yeah, I'm paraphrasing. But I mean, it was it was distinct from every other, from reporters from other nations that asked more insightful questions. Actually, the only the only uh, uh, reporter that was very similar was the Ch- reporter from Chinese state media who asked the exact inverse of that, which was a question to the effect of, isn't it very provocative the way that you're constantly appealing for more weapons from the United States in every public appearance that you you have? That was the Chinese reporter's question. Uh-huh. And then every other nation that was sort of non-allied, because of course there's people there from Argentina and so forth from every country. You can imagine, and they, they ask you know uh, questions that are more uh, to, that are more off to one side or another, not quite so. Mm-hmm. 
And, and, you know, I should say it's totally understandable. If my country was invaded, I'd be I'd be looking for weapons everywhere I can get them. Um, well, well, you know, and, and uh, I, I don't you know, I'd, I'd be doing what Zelensky's doing uh, and they're and they're they're pretty good at it. But but it uh, but as an American uh, and just as a citizen of the world, I'd like to get a clear idea of what's going on in the war. And and it's it, it, it really is hard. Well, um, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the Ukrainians, too, very, very much so. Having spent a bunch of time with them, it's impossible not to be. I, it was the same sort of dynamic. They were the people that were keeping me alive in a lot of cases. They clearly got invaded by Russia. I have absolutely no love lost for Russia whatsoever. However, as a reporter, I have a, a responsibility to be objective. And looking at the situation in Ukraine objectively, it's clear that the situation is untenable that, to have to be giving them enormous amounts of weapons with zero accountability, with not even an inspector general appointed to oversee uh, where the weapons are being distributed, knowing that Ukraine is the most corrupt country in uh, in Europe, has the highest corruption index, even by pro-NATO uh, uh, metrics and ways of measuring it. Um, so to flood this country with weapons and to ask absolutely no questions about that is highly irresponsible, uh, I think. And when you say most corrupt. I, I know the Transparency International, I guess it is, index has them only slightly ahead of Russia in terms of uh, corruption. I mean, only slightly better, uh, and and very bad as compared to to Western European countries by and large. Um, do you what form does the corruption assume? Do you do you do you see it when you're there, or do you just uh, you're going by the metrics, so to speak? You know, I'm not a specialist in uh, Eastern Europe or Russia by any means. Uh, don't speak either of those languages. Don't. I'm not particularly well-versed in the history of that part of the world. I only went there after the February invasion because I am experienced as a reporter covering active combat operations. Um, so I'm not really prepared to talk uh, in, in great detail about the particular forms that the corruption in Ukraine takes. However, I did happen to just see one incident that raised questions in my mind, which is I was staying at the Premier Palace, Ki uh, Premier Palace Hotel in Kiev. And one morning, I just, which is a very nice uh, uh, hotel in downtown Kiev, and I came downstairs one morning, and there were more than 100 Ukrainian soldiers and police there. They were just camped out on the ground floor. I had no idea what was going on. They had put up all of these banners that purported to show the ownership structure of the hotel. I asked the receptionist, you know, what's going on? And his response is, you know, these men are just here to talk to someone who's, they want to talk to some guests here. Very vague response. I could never get an understanding from anybody that I talked to about what exactly happened, but I understood that the army had seized that hotel and had just taken that hotel from its prior owners who were allegedly uh, linked to Viktor Yanukovych. And, you know, some of the people that I talked to regularly, talk to Ukrainian folks, just told me, like, this is now, not... Now, Yanukovych being the, uh, the deposed right. president? Yeah. Who okay. was deposed in 2014? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was the he was Ukraine's democratically elected uh, president who was overthrown in a coup that was uh, backed by the United States. Um, and regular Ukrainian people told me more or less like this is common here that you know we we have properties that change hands essentially at the point of a gun. Um, so it, it, I, I'm not here to denigrate Ukraine or just or to. to but, but a country that, that's, that's in that same situation, ex-Soviet state with a high degree of poverty, you're just going to see these weapons end up on the black market. It's inevitable. And we've already seen that, even though those reports are largely spread. Yeah. Let me, I, I know, uh, you, you, let's just pause briefly and talk about the 2014 thing, because I know you're 
calling it a coup will drive some people uh, crazy and other people will be driven crazy by calling it anything other than a coup. Uh, I mean, I usually I, I'm happy to call it a revolution. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, your point is it was not a democratic transfer of power. Uh, the president fled um, for fear of his life. Basically, there were armed opponents and 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 so on. Right. The uh, I mean, is there anything else you want to say about that? It's a big it's an under it's an under it's an under understood thing in America. I think uh, there's not many not I guess what I would say is not many people appreciate the role that plays in the psychology of people like Putin. Right. Their view is definitely that that was a Western-sponsored coup. There was uh, a president who was democratically elected. He, he's he's called pro-Russian, but I mean the truth is uh, he was initially inclined to go along with this associate membership in the European Union, which was driving Putin crazy. Putin offered huge subsidies to Ukraine to get him to change his mind. He changed his mind. He was a president. He had the power, I guess, to change his mind. And 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 it was after that uh, that he was deposed. And of course, famously, the U.S. had some people on the ground, Victoria Newland with the, with the State Department, whose phone call was secretly recorded, I gather, by the Russians. Uh, and, and, and people can Google that. But. Uh, well, now we know what I think about that. Is there anything else you want to say about it? Uh, look. You know, in Syria, there was a big groundswell of opposition to the Assad regime as well, uh, real opposition to his regime. Um, it, just like there were a lot of people in Ukraine who supported uh, wholeheartedly uh, and sincerely the Maidan movement, the overthrew Yanukovych. It's not to um, make those people invisible or to say that their views don't count or to say that they were just CIA puppets or what have you, or to say that the U.S. was sort of dictating these events. This is not the case. But just like in, in, in Syria, in Operation Timber, Timber Sycamore, uh, and in Ukraine, I don't even know what they would have called the program uh, that was directed at Ukraine in 2014. But certainly there was a concerted effort by U.S. spy agencies to tip the balance uh, over there and to cause these events to happen. Um, and I don't think there's anyone who doubts that the U.S. did what it could, uh, both diplomatically and assumedly on a covert level to make sure that those events happen. You, you say assumedly, so you don't, you're, you, there's no, this is strictly speaking speculative when you talk about uh, spy activity, uh, undisclosed. Yes, it is. And let me say again about for the context that I can provide, with like, let's look at Syria, for, for example. So there was a, one of the biggest CIA uh, program in, in my uh, generation's history was the, was the CIA program in Syria. There has been virtually no reporting around Timber Sycamore uh, and the billions of dollars that were spent there. I think there was one article in The New York Times ever about about it. So there, I'm not in a position to expose a massive uh, covert program like that. I can't do it on my own. And the rest of the media doesn't even look at it. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And this starts early. Uh, it's in the Obama administration, what, 2013 or something? Sure. And this is, you're talking about Ukraine. No, I was talking actually about Syria, the Syrian intervention, but uh, for that matter. It's a, to 2011, 2015, 16, that time frame. Um, the, uh, so you see parallels between kind of Syria and Ukraine in the sense that there was all along more going on that was unseen 
in the way of American attempt and Western attempt to influence the outcome of things, then then we then then we knew. Sure, but I, I don't want to get hung up on the Maidan in 2014. It's right. really not necessary because it's a broader. There's a broader picture here, which is that um, I mean, you can go as broad as you want. You can take a, 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 as many steps back as you want. You can say, "Look, Ukraine has been has been part of Russia off and on, going back centuries. These are two countries that have had their histories tightly entwined." Uh, whether we like it or not, Ukraine is very important to Russia. It's very important to Putin. And uh, the United States promised the Soviet Union that they would not expand NATO after, if they withdrew nukes mm-hmm. from Eastern Europe, a promise which they completely went back on and instead pushed NATO right up to the borders of uh, Ukraine and said or flirted with the idea many times publicly that they were going to invite Ukraine to NATO, knowing that that was that that was damn certain to provoke some kind of reaction from Russia, which is what they wanted, in my view, uh, Russia to do. They wanted Putin to invade Ukraine. This is great for them. Do you think so? Because sure, because the first part of your sermon is something that uh, readers of my newsletter are painfully familiar with. (laughs) They're like sick of me talking about how things actually look from Putin's point of view. I just think it's always important to understand how things look from everybody's point of view, certainly including adversaries and enemies. But, you know, in terms of his own motivation, uh, the NATO thing was was a very big issue for him. What I what I haven't been sold, I, I kind of see the the Biden administration as almost stumbling into this more than anything else. But you actually think there was. Uh, well, what? No, this is one view. This is what? one view. I've heard that that uh, the U.S. was kind of baiting. Russia ended. Now, we actually did that in Afghanistan. We now know that Zbig Brzezinski in the Carter administration was saying, let's try to bait them into intervening in Afghanistan. They did. It worked more or less as he had planned, except he didn't anticipate uh, the blowback of cultivating a whole bunch of jihadists who would come back to haunt us. That aside, he got yeah. it right. You, I assume this has to be speculative, though. There's no <laughs> right... It's speculative, but it's also based on spending my entire adult life observing the military, the State Department, the CIA, and how they operate towards other countries and how they perpetuate regime changes in a half dozen or a dozen different countries. And, you know, you mentioned the Bush, or excuse me, the Biden administration a moment ago um, and sort of stumbling into this. Well, of course, they're stumbling into this. I mean, you can't assume that the president and Jake Sullivan and so forth are in, in the driver's seat. It's going to be the neocon State Department and the neocon CIA that are that are the ones that hold these levers uh, and that are able to operate these with more or less with autonomy, just like we've seen them do in all their other you know desks that are aimed at the Middle East or other parts of the world, China as well. I mean, that's what people talk about when it's a term that drives uh, liberals uh, crazy to talk about like deep state, and there needs to be a better word for it. But there is a sort of fe- there is a permanent federal bureaucracy. It's involved in the day-to-day policy, uh, day-to-day operation of foreign policy. And those are the people that are in real position to make stuff like this happen in Ukraine. By the way, also Desert Storm was allegedly, um, uh, or a lot of people that are knowledgeable suspect that it was deliberately provoked as well. That Saddam Hussein was given false assurances uh, by the U.S. ambassador that everything would be fine if he invaded Kuwait because the H.W. Bush administration wanted him to do that so they could smack him back in his place and make him more politically popular. So... This is not particularly, um, you know, this isn't completely unprecedented, this type of move. It's an old strategic, it's a simple strategic move, in fact. Okay, let me uh, 
give you a form of pushback. So you use the word neocon in respect to both the State Department and CIA. Now, Anthony Blinken, I've been trying to figure out his ideology. There's not that much on the record, really. Uh, I have not ruled out the possibility that he has strong neocon leanings. And I will say, I'm sure you're aware of what the uh, counselor to the State Department, Derek Cholet, who who reports directly to Blinken, said in this uh, War on the Rocks podcast. He was virtually bragging about the fact that we refused to talk uh, about NATO with Russia in advance. And of course, everybody knew that if you're not willing to talk about that, you're probably not going to stop the invasion. I mean, that that's so so there is there is that. Well, it sounds like before I get to the CIA, where I think it's I mean, I, w- I certainly wouldn't say Bill Burns is a neocon and he's running it. But before we get to the CIA, it looks like you wanted to say something on that point. Well, I wanted to define neocon. OK. In my view, a neocon is someone who believes that the United States has a divine right to rule the world. Uh, and in a way that they think about it in secular terms is that they're determ- determined to preserve U.S. unipolar hegemony. So you can, it's the same way either way you look at it. Um, but I think all the people that are in those institutions uh, more or less believe that. They're determined to make sure that a country like that Russia is kept in its place. And they're determined to make sure that a rival like China does not emerge and cannot challenge the United States. That's what I mean by So they don't have to literally believe it's divinely ordained, but but they have to be at a minimum what you would call American exceptionalists. Absolutely. Or you, they wouldn't have to be American exceptionalists in the sort of metaphysical sense and actually believe it and believe that the U.S. occupies some kind of superior moral standing. They might just be determined to preserve U.S. hegemony. Yeah. Okay. So that's a pretty loose definition. I'm still not sold on Bill Burns. I mean, uh, the, the, uh, he, see, I mean, for example, Bill Burns sent the fame, you know, in 2008, as you know, when he was ambassador to, to Russia, he is now again, head of the CIA. And of course you, you would probably make the point that look, the deep state goes deeper than whoever is running an agency at the, at the time. Although it certainly probably helps uh, anybody anywhere in the agency with an agenda, if the person uh, heading the agency shares it. But but all that aside, you know, Bill Burns in 2008, he sent, first of all, f- a famous email to Condi Rice saying, look, Ukraine is a red line for Russia. It's not just Putin. It's everyone in the national security establishment in Russia. This is the elites agree. It's a red line. You know, he all but said, don't do it. And then separately, he sent a memo for broader distribution about Ukraine that was called the title of the memo was Nyet means Nyet. OK, so, you know, he was that doesn't sound to me like a neocon. Well, you know, you've caught me at a certain uh, point in time and a certain mood. And I, I'm about <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> I don't I don't go around and in my writing. I don't uh, go around throwing these uh, vituperative terms at various officials in, in the U.S. establishment, calling them all neocons and, and ranting about Maidon and how it was a CIA coup and all this stuff like that in the past. It's really not uh, how I sound most of the time. But these people have us literally on the, if not on the cusp of nuclear war, seriously worried in our day-to-day lives. Well, I personally, not to single myself out, just like any other American who thinks seriously about these things, Literally imagining what's it going to be like if I hear that dull thud over the background and some city is getting actually vaporized because these maniacs push things too far. I mean, I'm going to charge them with responsibility, all of them as a class, with responsibility for putting us in the situation which was totally avoidable 
But there is no reason why in 2022, any of us should be sweating uh, cold sweat over the possibility of nuclear war. That's insane. And because of their failure of leadership and because of their institutional uh, sclerotic uh, nature, whatever you want to call it, whether they're neocons or liberal interventionists, they're all responsible for getting us in this mess. They could stop it just like Russia could stop it. Both countries are jointly and severally liable for this terrible situation because either one of them could bring a stop to it tomorrow if they really wanted to, and, and they haven't. What would, what would our side do to bring a stop to it tomorrow? Well, the U.S. president is in a position always to step in and say, let's negotiate. Something that they have made clear is off the table that they're not going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S. is totally, everything that Ukraine does is chargeable to the United States because without the U.S. backstopping Ukraine, they would have ceased to exist. They're funding the government entirely. They're funding the military almost entirely. Uh, the, our spy agencies are calling a lot of the shots behind the scenes, if only in the way that they selectively uh, uh, provide intelligence to the Ukrainians. They are absolutely in the driver's seat. The Ukrainians are not in the driver's seat. So we are, are basically in control of the Ukrainians. And of course, the Russians can stop it on there. And if they wanted to, which they should, too, they're equally morally responsible for the situation. Don't get me wrong. So if Biden said to Zelensky, look, no more weapons unless we call for, uh, you know, peace talks right now, uh, that would have to happen as a practical matter. And, you know, of course, the the fear is and I I share I share this uh, concern and regret or whatever, is that at this point, um, any peace deal, any realistic peace deal. Uh, is going to involve, in effect, rewarding Russia with territory for invading a sovereign country. Of course, this is why it's such a tragedy that we didn't try serious diplomacy. We didn't have to get our, you know, I, who knows if diplomacy wouldn't have, would have worked, but we now know we really didn't try. And, uh, y- you know, assuming that Derek Cholet, you know, this high-ranking State Department is telling us the truth, and that's the only public declaration I'm really aware of about what the substance um, of our... Uh, offer was and wasn't. But anyway, there's just my little editorial comment is, is if you want to not reward countries for aggression, you might think about diplomacy in advance of the aggression. Absolutely. Um, you know, we could have come to a, no doubt the position that we could have, uh, let's say on February 22nd or February 23rd, the position, the negotiated outcome there will be, in, in retrospect, will have been better than what we see in the end. That's for sure. For sure. I mean, you know, assuming a a diplomatic deal was there to be had and you only know if you if you try and and make offers. But uh, that's the sad thing. Ukraine is unless something's very unlikely happens, they're going to wind up in a much, much, much worse position than the worst position you can imagine them being in as a result of of a of a negotiated settlement before the war. Well, not to mention all the dead people and permanently maimed people. That 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 doesn't matter at all from the people from the perspective of state, CIA, DIA, <clears throat> JSOC, Pentagon, White House. Human life means nothing to these people, and that sounds like the wildest sort of ranting to to you know the r- responsible listeners. And I don't, for lack of a better term. But what else can we say when it's the same institutions led by the same officials that just got done killing millions of people in the Middle East and in Southwest Asia as a result of their of their last foreign military adventures? 
They completely brushed that off. Six months after the fall of Kabul, after the biggest military disaster in U.S. history, 20 years of war. They were once again fully engaged, pedal to the metal in another full-blown armed conflict in Ukraine. Um, and the goal there doesn't seem to have any uh, connection with uh, the number of people, the number of Ukrainians who live or die. Because what we're told is that 200 Ukrainian soldiers are dying per day. And the U.S. position is no negotiation. It's totally off the table. So I don't think that that really figures into their calculations whatsoever. I think it's totally outside the calculus. And they're entirely thinking about how many Russians die. And that's, for them, that's a positive count. They want to make sure they want to maximize the number of Russian people who die. Not, the, not, not that they want to have the most strategic impact on Russia or have the most advantageous political outcome for the Ukrainians. These people are thinking in terms of murder, in terms of homicide, racking up a big body count. And I may be wrong about that and maybe a bit unfair to some of the people that are working at a staff level on these things, but I don't think so. I don't think I'm wrong. Well, I think what they would say, I guess apparently it's my job to defend these people in this particular conversation. <laughs> I, I think what they would say is they want to weaken Russia in the long run. And in their mind, that probably has less to do with how many soldiers die then how much hardware they lose, how much, in a certain sense, how much prestige they lose, how much kind of mojo they lose in the eyes of like uh, Ch China, various countries who might support them. I mean, they would say, look, it's a very, it's a very complicated strategic calculation. They would even say, look, it's regrettable that these Russian soldiers have to die because we all know that that the difference between 5,000 and, and, and 40,000 Russians dying is not a big deal in terms of the, of the future strategic power of Russia. That part's regrettable. I think that's what they'd say. That said, I mean, I would say the framework I just described is a ridiculous framework to use in the modern world. Unless you enjoyed the Cold War and just think it's cool to be playing this global chess game and you don't want to, you know, look for a world in which the great powers actually cooperate to solve the world's actual pressing problems. That that would be my line. I, I completely agree. The 21st century has been absolutely horrifying. And, you know, that I, I disagree with the with the point of view, not that you're taking this point of view, but the, the uh, a point of view that I commonly see, which is looking this, at this as a bloodless chess game. I mean, in March, I was on a battlefield in Ukraine and look where there was dead Russian soldiers all over the place. I saw their bodies from two feet away. There's brains and skulls on the ground. There's people with their faces burned. There's people that are laying there with their with mangled limbs. I mean, it's horrifying. This is this is the sort of project that the two these two great countries are up are are, are perpetrating on 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 the world instead of like you said, you know, banding together to solve some of the real problems that we have. I mean, I guess that sounds some people like hopelessly i don't know idealistic or just missing the point or just out of touch i don't know but i remain horrified that this 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 mechanized slaughter is taking place uh you know with the full sponsorship of my own government yeah it's uh i mean one of the kind of distressing things is to you know when i read i have my little ukraine twitter feed and it has voices from both sides uh I want to talk about that. Like, how do you, is there a way to get a clear view of what's going on by following certain people on the Russian side as well as certain people on the Western side? But uh, it's distressing to see the cheerleading, although I understand it. I mean, I, I find myself getting caught up in it. It's like, 
I, I like right now, I would like the Ukrainians to take Kherson in, in part because like I have no illusions about them ever chasing Russia completely out of Ukraine. But it does seem to me that river would be a much more stable border if you're hoping for eventual peace. Uh, and uh, so I'm rooting for that. And it's easy to get it's easy to get caught up in uh, in that. And and you see a blown up Russian tank and you think, cool, without thinking about the person inside. Uh, but the, the, the kind of overt cheerleading. Like, for example, you know, among these respected voices on Twitter, because they've become part of, the, you know, the open intelligence stuff on Twitter, these kind of just hobbyists who actually do a good job of using open sources to tell us where the current uh, borders are and stuff. And these like respected guys on Twitter will see like, you know, a, a footage of a dead Chechen and say, oh, fried Chechen, you know, and it's like you just wish we were kind of beyond that and and everyone at least could understand even if you believe in the war even you know and again i i am against <laughs> invasions of sovereign countries leaving aside the, my belief that we could have avoided the invasion in various ways uh i'm against it. it's terrible i just wish humankind could try to adopt this perspective of kind of regret over all of the carnage, even in a war you believe in. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, and those bloodthirsty couch potatoes tweeting stuff like fried Chechen, they're like that. They've had their humanity calloused like that, not from the experience of brutality of war, but from their comfort of their life uh, and the lack of any real um, violence or brutality around them, which makes them capable of saying things like that without reflection because it's never touched them deeply. That's probably often true. I mean, I'm sure there are some, some vets. Well, this brings us back to your mission. There, 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 uh, when you first went there, you went to try to find the foreign legion. Uh, it, it had not coalesced to the extent that maybe some people thought it had, I gather. But I'm sure you, you, you did encounter people who had come to this war to fight and a number of them, you know, from other countries, including America. And some of them were, uh, I guess, a lot of them were actually military veterans who had been to war before. Right. And uh, and I guess wanted to to recover some of that, whatever it was they liked about it the first time around. Yeah, um, almost all the people that I saw actually accepted into the into the International Legion were were veterans of Iraq or Afghanistan, all of them. I'm comfortable saying virtually 100% of the war. I mean, the Ukrainians made that explicit after a couple of weeks when, uh, when thousands of people showed up in various countries who had no business being there whatsoever. They said, all right, that's enough. We're only taking you know veterans now, which in practice uh, means UK uh, and uh, American uh, veterans of those two, of those two wars. Um, and we have no idea how many of them are actually in the battle. We have no many, no idea how of them how of them have actually died. In fact, I just asked the State Department a couple of days ago if they would uh, release them because you know the second American when he died, the second confirmed American, Stephen Zelielski, I think was his name. Um, I actually reported on his death because I was still following it at that time, and I learned about it a month after it happened. Uh, asked the State Department for confirmation, and they had known about it for uh since it had happened so for a month they had known about it so my point is just that um that the state department is aware of that x number of people have died and that those have been confirmed but won't say it and a lot of those men that have died over there are military uh, veterans and reservists um 
So it's a bit uh, question, especially when you have uh, a bunch of special operations uh, troops over there, not to mention CIA uh, officers. Do, do we know that there are, I've definitely heard that there are CIA people over there. Do we know that they're also like special forces people? Uh, yes, I think, I think we can say for sure that we, we do know that now. Um, you know, I happened to tweet something right on the eve of, or about a week into the war when I was crossing the border myself. Um, uh, a source who was a very knowledgeable source told me that JSOC was on the ground in Ukraine. What What is JSOC stand for? JSOC is the Joint Special Operations Command. It's a uh, It's a covert military within the military that we've had since uh, nine. We haven't. So, started. like, like Green Berets and SEALs come under JSOC. Uh, JSOC is primarily Delta Force and SEAL Team Six. Okay. Um, it, it, it's what's called the special mission units of every service branch. So like the, the top tier commando units of every, uh, military service branch, the elite of the special forces kind of, yes, it is. And by combining them in that way and creating a separate combatant command, the U S effectively created a military within the military, because it's like, uh, it's like a composition of all the rest of the military, except super elite. Uh, completely vertically, ver, uh, vertic uh, vertically integrated, effectively answers directly to the president. Everything it does is totally secret. The existence of these units themselves is secret. Um, answers zero questions, releases zero information, do whatever they want. And they're charged primarily with all of the wars over the last 10 years. It's been JSOC's doing. JSOC, uh, at its growth uh, and its uh, development and its becoming uh, more and more like an intelligence agency. These are all things that most people, unless you're paying very close attention, is completely passed by. And yet JSOC is one of the most important institutions in the United States and certainly has eclipsed the CIA in terms of its uh, prestige, power, influence, autonomy, what have you, budget. So they were on the ground as of week one. You've confirmed that to your satisfaction. I, I did not confirm that. A source told me that that I, that I had high confidence in. And it well, also what, was the, what was the nature of the source? Someone who formerly was a JSOC officer and who was instrumental in creating a particular type of JSOC unit, which is called Advanced Force Operations or AFO. He was telling me this is exactly why we created the AFOs to do this. And I, you know, I think when I mentioned that Biden had said that there was no U.S. personnel in Ukraine, he just laughed out loud because, of course, he said that. And I've seen that before in Syria. The, the, the military would say we have X number of soldiers in Syria. Well, after years of reporting over there, not being able to get these numbers to add up with what I was seeing on the ground, I finally realized that when they release public statements in their minds, JSOC simply doesn't exist because it's organized to do missions under Title 10 and Title 50, which are covert operations, which gives the U.S. government legal authority or U.S. officials legal authority to lie in public facing settings to tell you this is not happening when it is. The only thing they have to do is they have to brief Congress. In closed sessions uh, with Congress, they have to tell Congress the truth about what they're doing. But publicly facing, talking to reporters, if it's the president at a podium, they can say whatever they want. And JSOC doesn't exist. It's outside of everything that they're saying, outside the bounds of whatever they're saying. So I had previously seen that before in Syria. And my source simply laughed when I suggested that, you know, the president's statement that all U.S. troops had left uh, Ukraine applied to, to JSOC. Um, I tweeted that. Uh, it was absolutely pilloried for it. Um, it's the first time it ever happened to me, relatively new to social media, didn't join until 2020. It was the first time I had like thousands, if not tens of thousands of people uh, angrily tweeting at me for what, for supposedly disclosing this 
uh, classified information that, in their view, should have been out there. In any case, several uh, weeks later, uh, or possibly several months later, the New York Times reported it, and it was no big deal. Uh, that there was a, a stealthy network of U.S. commandos in, on the ground in Ukraine, and not just U.S., by the way, but also British and French. So to answer your question, there's not only JSOC and U.S. Special Operations, there's not only CIA officers, there's also this large body of uh, recent uh, uh, recent veterans from the, from the U.S. and Britain mm-hmm. also over there fighting. The war couldn't possibly be more of a Western uh, U.S. war unless you actually had combat divisions and air force assets participating in it. We have everything short of that. Yeah. And what surprises me is, you know, notwithstanding whatever information that they may, as you just said, not be giving us or, or actively uh, distorting even um, how kind of open they've been about the, what an active role we are playing. I mean, after the offensive in Kharkiv, the big one, the dramatic thing, uh, whose consequences I want to discuss in in only a couple of uh, minutes uh, after after we talk about this. But the uh, there was a big piece in the New York Times where military sources were kind of taking credit for it. Like that, like I'm sure you remember the piece. Uh, and and ma- they were mainly anonymous. Sort they were basically saying, look, Zelensky came to the, you know we got we got ukraine they started you know i gather finally to america's uh satisfaction being more open about what their military plans were the us said and, and at that point it was just a Kers- maybe it was just a kherson attack or it was it was uh, east of kherson whatever and the americans said no no i think you, this isn't going to work we want you to, we want you to do this so they did that and the idea was that's what worked it was the it was kind of the American plan. And most of the Pentagon sources, this piece were anonymous. But Colin Call, a high ranking Pentagon official, was public on the record. And, and what I wondered was, like, in his defense, maybe The New York Times got the story from anonymous sources and maybe it wasn't an official leak. And they went to call and he figured he had to say something, maybe. But what it came off as is America saying, hey. Don't be under any doubts, Russia. We're running this war. And we had previously disclosed that we were giving them intelligence that helped uh, that helped Ukraine uh, kill Russian generals. Now, I heard very recently we tried to draw a distinction between, well, we don't give them the names of individual generals who are there. We just give them location command centers. So maybe we're starting to have second thoughts about the openness of our declarations about our role in this. But do you know what I mean? Have you... Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's Russia is fully aware that this is. A, I mean, it's just crazy and, and and makes your head spin to think that this time last year we were just we were just in the tail end of the pandemic, uh, and now just one year later we're at war with Russia. Effectively, the U.S. is at war with Russia, um, and this model of proxy warfare was pioneered in Syria because I think what the neocons learned as a result of the Iraq War. And the Afghanistan war is that there is a hard limit on their exercise of power. I mean, uh, the U.S. could lose. We have a very large country, a very large army. We've seen how many soldiers Russia is prepared to to lose. The U.S., in theory, could fight wars and lose a lot more soldiers than we have. But in in practice, popular opinion doesn't allow for that. So in the Iraq war, 5,000 soldiers that got killed over there, people would not stand for that. They did not like to see American soldiers coming back to coffins. The war's popularity evaporated once the casualties started to climb. In Syria, the the United States pioneered this alternative model of of hybrid or proxy warfare, which is that 
all your ground infantry is going to be local indigenous forces. In the case of Syria, the Syrian Democratic Forces, Syrian Kurds, whatever you want to call them. That is combined. So those you have those people, that are, but they're teamed up with special operations soldiers who are very experienced guys who normally do not get themselves killed, uh, only, or only very, very rarely get killed when they accidentally step on a landmine or something. For the most part, they're able to operate without being seen and without um, getting killed. And there's one of those for every hundred indigenous forces, let's say. Plus, you also have your CIA and your State Department people there on the ground. By the way, this is not speculation. I've literally seen these people with my own eyes in places like Raqqa fighting with the Syrian Democratic Forces. Uh, and then uh, overhead in the skies, you have the U.S. Air Force carrying out bombs. And these are people who, uh, just to connect it to what you were talking about, if they die, like we won't find out. These are Americans. I mean, at some point, their will, death must be disclosed, right? You will find out. If they, it depends on who they are. If it's JSOC, you'll find out. And there were JSOC casualties in Syria, people that died. And there was also other people, I believe some State Department people got killed, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I mean, who are... Who are the people who that the U.S. recently refused to talk about? So those are CIA officers. Those are CIA officers. They won't tell us if they die. They do have to tell us if JSOC people actually die. They can lie about the JSOC people being there in the first place, but they eventually have to tell us if they die. Correct. Exactly. Except for one thing, that if a CIA officer dies, they will tell you that there was a death of a CIA officer, but they won't identify the officer I see, I see, I see. where they died. And there were two of those in May, I think. May of this year, two more stars went on the CIA wall in May of this year. Okay, from Ukraine. Well, they won't say. Uh huh. Okay, I but, see. I mean, where I do you see. think so it happened? Oh, very big. So the model you're talking about is is it was also kind of used in Afghanistan in the '80s, right? I mean, it's it's. Uh, uh, yeah, you could say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's it. So so on this Kharkiv, uh, you know, the big offensive, uh, Ukrainian offensive that was so successful in September. You uh, wrote this piece for Responsible Statecraft saying, uh, you know, don't get your hopes up. You, your, your projection is that in the long run, this is a frozen war. And I will say that the weeks since you wrote the piece have tended to, uh, it's way too soon, of course, but, but they have been consistent with your thesis in the sense that, you know, some people were hoping for uh, that the next step would be radical progress in Kherson. There was there was uh, kind of a quick gaining of a, like 150 square miles in the north of the Kherson area. But that was now, I don't know, more than a week ago, and there's been no further progress. And that was not nearly comparable in scope to what had happened to Kharkiv. So hasn't been a lot of progress since then. And your view is that, you know, the, the lines will change. But but what? I mean, you, you flesh it out. What is it that you're predicting about the future? Well, um, I'm predicting very little change in the future. I'm predicting a frozen conflict. I'm predicting that the exact same thing happens in Ukraine that happens in every other single, every other U.S.-led war that we've seen, that we've been witness to in our lifetime, which is not that bold of a prediction. It's it's pretty, uh, it's a pretty safe bet. And you know this this dynamic shows something that I think is really irresponsible about uh, our media, our press, which is that they have no shame about constantly whipping up people's expectations and 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 convincing audiences that there's going to be this lightning offensive and the Russian forces are demoralized and the tail, tail tuck between their legs going to retreat behind their border. And in fact, the whole Putin regime is uh, imperiled and he's surrounded by coup plotters who are going to have knives out for him just as soon as the ne very next domino falls. There's no accountability for those statements. You never come back a month from now and say, hey, you know, whether it's the New York Times, not to pick on them, just the biggest, or the Washington Post or what have you to say, hey, you want to 
defend your coverage from you know three months ago where you're having everyone believe that this thing is at a turning point when a much more responsible person who was looking at the situation objectively and was only motivated out of concerns for uh, humanity and what's best for, for, for the world and for our country and for the Ukrainians would take a completely different look at this and much more sober and serious look at this. And it, just from the map, you can tell that this is not the way that it's being portrayed. This is not an accurate portrayal of the Kherson Offensive. I was in Ukraine in, in March and, and, and all of March and all of April. There was a ton of movement at those times. The maps changed daily, especially when the Russians fell back from Kyiv. Um, since then, since from, from April 30th till now, there's been virtually no change at all in the map. None, except for the Kharkiv offensive, offensive uh, I guess about a month ago now. Um, and you can look at it on a map and without any reference to any other information other than the map, you can see this one chip fall away. Uh, and if you look a little bit closer at that, you can see what's around Kharkiv, which never fell to the Russians. That's Ukraine's second biggest city, by the way, a very important city. Right. The Russians assaulted the outskirts of it, never really could take it. It pertains to the northern part of the country. Well, everything's the eastern part of the country, but within that, there's also the north and the south. And so Russia, having failed to take Kyiv, having failed to take Kharkiv, just fell back from those areas, consolidated its gains around the Donbass, and to secure a land bridge to, to Crimea. Anyone can understand that. Anyone can understand, see that in sort of macro strategy. And why the Kharkiv area, the countryside around Kharkiv, which as far as I'm able to tell, is just so much of frozen beet farms, um, isn't important to this. And that's why it was so lightly defended by the Russians. It was smart of the Ukrainians, probably led by U.S. intelligence, to attack that point. It's precisely because it wasn't well defended that they, that they chose to attack it. And sure enough, the Russians were like, well, we're getting out of here. We don't need this area. So they fell back behind that river up there and then held the line there. So you can look at that and see that that happened and understand that this does not portend some grand realignment of the battlefield map, which was how it was uniformly portrayed uh, in the West with the consequence that people's appetite for more of this conflict is, is stoked. And I think that's highly irresponsible. Part of now, there were some logistically important areas that fell to the Ukrainians, right? I mean, the, 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 the conventional reporting, which I perhaps naively accepted, was that this would complicate uh, the 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 Russian war effort in the Donbass because of the stuff, the rail lines and so on that flowed through uh, Azum and whatever. I, I I read that same stuff, and again, you know, I've never pretended to be an expert in Eastern Europe, but just by looking at a, a map, literally Google Maps, I hear all the well, Azum rail station is so important. But I look at it, well, it's not important anymore if you're not in that area. They no longer need to serve that area. They just left that area. So why do they need a rail station in Izium if they're no longer around Izium? Now they have another rail station in the areas that they are at. And, and also, they were, they're right up against the border with Russia. So they can just walk across the border, whatever they need. And, and beyond that, just, on, just again, on Google Maps, you can see what are the major roads here? What are the major highways? You can see that the Kharkiv offensive doesn't really affect that. And the two real hubs are Donetsk and Luhansk, those two cities are massively important. You can see all the roads run to those areas, all the railroads run to those areas, and then they run out of there into Mariupol, Meliotopol, and Kherson, and Crimea, and all those other things. So the way it was being portrayed just wasn't consistent with uh, with just a basic map. Yeah. Well, it, it had, I guess, to the credit of the mainstream media, I think there were reports in the mainstream media, I don't think this was only on my Twitter feed, that, you know, frankly, some of the motivation for all of this was that Ukraine 
believed they needed a big victory to keep the weapons flowing over the winter. And, and maybe, you know, maybe the Biden administration felt the same way and kind of said, look, we need to show something if you or it's going to get politically difficult for us to keep providing weapons. Who knows? But that, that was kind of reported that that was part of the, the motivation. Originally, it was reported in the context of Kherson, but then it turned out to everyone's surprise, the big victory was in Kharkiv, and it seemed like that would do for, for these purposes, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. speed, one more question about the, the, the short-term uh, future of the map. So there, in Kherson, and for people who aren't paying close attention to this, you know, that is one of the that that Kherson Oblast province is one of the four provinces that Putin has annexed. Uh, Kherson City uh, sits mainly on the uh, western side of the Dnieper River. And, and this is really the only zone west of that river uh, that is occupied by Russia. Ukrainians are still trying to to. Uh, push the Russians across the river. No progress in recent days. It has been reported, for what it's worth, that the Russian generals wanted to withdraw back across the river, and Putin insisted that they stay there, which would make sense from his political point of view, since he just annexed the whole you know, province. It'd be kind of embarrassing if he had to leave the capital. Uh, but... Um, do you have any? I know. I know you don't. You don't uh, depict yourself as some kind of uh, modern-day Clausewitz or anything. But do you have any uh, sense for whether that part of Kherson could fall to Ukraine? Uh, I'm trying to look, pulling a, a map right now, the live UA map. Um, and what river are you talking about? That you're talking about the Dnieper. Well, the Dnieper. The the yeah, yeah Dnieper. The the D N I E P E R. It's the big river yeah. that that is commonly thought of. It had been thought of as kind of as far as, well, uh, maybe it wasn't. But anyway. Yeah. To answer your question, I mean. Um, so so Kherson City is to the is on the uh, yeah, west bank of that. Yeah. I'm looking at it. The, you know, uh, it does make sense that it does seem like a more natural border for them to fall uh, uh, south of. And then it, it sounds like I'm not sure if I'm interpreting, interpreting you exactly correctly, but it sounds like, you know, you're thinking towards a, a negotiated possible settlements of this like what, what would make sense to negotiate where to draw these lines but i will say that i have no insight whatsoever on like what will happen on the actual battlefield um uh yeah. in this area but i will say that the city itself is probably you know in terms of modern warfare the city itself is probably a more significant um physical uh i don't know what you call it just a physical uh thing entity that makes more of a difference um in terms of how things go than, than a river, uh, because a river can be crossed um, without too much difficulty, or let's just say a river can be crossed much, much easier than a city can be seized. In a yeah. Warfare is very, very difficult. Well, that's why I think the Ukrainian plan is to cut off everything coming over that river and kind of, you know, starve them out, so to speak. But but in any of it, because, yeah, taking cities is hard, hard. Uh, w- without getting brutal, which uh, winds up happening if you if you take a city. The... the um, so let's uh but speaking of cities did you get any sense for you know there's been very little mainstream reporting on the landscape of opinion among ukrainian residents in the east like 
if you actually held an honest referendum, and of course, at this point, you almost can't because uh, so many pro-Ukrainian citizens, I gather, have fled in the face of the Russian onslaught. They're the kind who are likely to leave. If there's a divided population, some are pro-Russian, some are pro-Ukrainian, the, you, the pro-Ukrainians are probably going to leave when the Russians come. Um, did you, there's been almost, it, it, it's almost uh, assumed in Western coverage, I think, that every every person living in Ukraine is is pro-Ukrainian and and there's virtually no pro-Russian sentiment. That that certainly wasn't the case some years ago. I know things may change once the Russians are the invaders and the ones bombing your cities. That, that I can well imagine that. I suspect they may have changed since 2014 uh, as a result of the ongoing you know war with the separatists in in the Donbass. But did you get any sense for? Uh, the lay of the land there in terms of opinion? I mean, did you talk to Ukrainians or anything of various dispositions or? Well, what you say is, of course, true. That's the whole problem with Ukraine. That's where all of this uh, springs from, which is that Ukraine is a country that has a, a conflict, just like any country might have a conflict around um, ethnic or linguistic lines. The country is divided between East and West. Our own country has fault lines like this. There's a very clear fault line in Ukraine between people, people oriented in the West around Lviv and Kiev who want to be part of Europe and have what more Western European cultural values and so forth, and those in the East who are more inclined with Russia. I mean, what, what more can I say about it that hasn't played out in Ukrainian politics over the, over the last 10 or 20 years? I mean, that's the essence of the, of the problem in uh, Ukraine. And of course, there are a major, a large component of the society uh, is oriented towards Russia or inclined towards Russia or presumably would consent to being part of Russia or would rather be part, uh, rather be part, uh, answer to Moscow than to Kiev, uh, which is why Putin targeted them in the first place. That's why he's moved to occupy these zones um, where people are, uh, they say they're ethnically Russian. I don't really understand how a person can be ethnically Ukrainian or Russian. They all look the same to me. I, I, they usually mean, I think, what was their native language? What were they brought up speaking, right? Well, they all speak Russian is the thing. Right. But there's usually one language in the household that's the predominant language. It's and, almost always, in my experience, it was almost always Russian. And people would say, like, the only place where they speak Ukrainian natively is in villages in the West. Uh-huh. Although it, it's becoming more popular to speak it, Ukrainian as a result of the conflict with Russia, right? Absolutely. And, you know, the, it's a real limitation for me because I literally can't tell the difference between Ukrainian and Russian being spoken. So. Yeah, uh, I've never presented myself as an expert on this conflict. I was just there to cover the, the battle yeah. of you and so forth. So um, on the let's just uh, before we go, let's talk a little more about the challenge of. Um, well, I, there's kind of two things I want to cover. I mean, first of all, I want to say, uh, you know, when I said I don't understand uh, why the U.S. wants to advertise its role in getting Russian generals killed and in formulating successful Ukrainian battle plans. Uh, the reason I say that is because I'm pretty sure Putin uses that as propaganda to mobilize domestic support for this war, right? And, and I mean, is that, first of all, is that your understanding? That Putin uses U.S. involvement to mobilize? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the more we admit it, the, I mean, that's going to get advertised on, in Russian, you know, uh, whatever circles to mobilize support for the war. I mean, uh, that's their whole line, right? That this is against NATO and America, not against Ukraine. 
my guess is that the people that are taking credit for this just want to take credit for the people that are calling up uh, yeah. and bragging about it. I mean, you know, you don't want to it's to impute um, motives or intentions to people if you don't know them. Uh, but my sense of people who work in these agencies is that there is that that is when I talk to, to people who work, for example, in the CIA, I interviewed the former CIA station chief in Kiev. I think we're tempted to give them far more credit than they deserve uh, and imagine that they're much more reasonable than they actually are. Uh, this person that, that I interviewed, uh, when I spoke to him about the conflict, I was, I was marveling for days afterwards at how deluded he sounded with the way that he was talking about Russians. I mean, I don't even know. I don't even have the words for it. I have to pull up the transcript. What the was his confusion? What was he wrong about? He constantly was talking about like the Russian character. It was almost like this sort of pseudo-ethnic pseudo analysis of it and how Russians were incapable of, 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 rational, uh, of, of rational thinking and how mm. Russians are totally mysterious and how it's impossible to understand what they're really thinking and how, it's, how you can never know exactly what they're going to do. It's the same sort of Orientalist type thinking that they would always impose on the Iraqis during the Iraq war, that you just can't trust these people. You have no idea. Their, their conflicts are so nice and opaque. And then before Iraq, it was, in a, it was the same thing with the Vietnamese. You just can't, you have no idea what these Asiatic people are thinking. They're impenetrable. They're just, there's just a blank, obscure, uh, you know, facade. And it, 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 to hear that same sort of language used towards the, towards the Russians, you, 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 you understand the work that that type of language is doing, which is that they're not really human. And it's okay to kill them in large numbers is, I think, what the real, uh, what the work that type of uh, uh, vocabulary and thinking is. And I was just shocked that someone who could be in such an important, crucial position could seem to truly hold those beliefs. Like, he seemed to legitimately believe that. So, so one thing you're saying is don't assume that these guys wouldn't just follow the normal human impulse to claim credit for whatever you think you deserve credit for and go brag to reporters and stuff. Absolutely. The 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 uh, I mean I suppose it's also possible the Biden administration thought this would help politically like midterms approaching we want the, them to think that this you know kind of the Ukraine war is a success so the Democratic Party's you know uh, could be that uh, I I don't know but anyway what I was gonna um what I was gonna say was uh, I I really you know I'm a, again as as readers of uh, the non-zero newsletter know I'm a firm believer in trying to understand how everyone is viewing the world including enemies and adversaries. One reason is that if you're in a war, you don't want to play into their, their propaganda machine. But the other reason is, if you're going to avoid wars in the first place, you have to understand what their red lines are so that you at least are clear on what might succeed in mm -hmm. avoiding a war. And, you know, for that reason, I have, in following the Ukraine war, I've really worked hard to understand, like, how it might be perceived in Russia, well, two two separate and related questions. I know how it's perceived in the West. That's what I get in the New York Times. Uh, I want to I want to try to understand how it's being perceived in Russia, and then ideally, out of all that, figure out what's actually going on on the ground. Because I know I shouldn't trust either of those sources if that's my goal. But some somehow the truth uh, might emerge, or you might get closer to it. I want to ask you how you handled this challenge, and I want to give you, you know, a specific example is if you follow the pro-Russia uh, side, I follow them and the West on Twitter, just as, you know, during the Trump administration, I listened to Steve Bannon's podcast, even though I'm not a fan, right? I wanted to understand. 
the other side. And um, and and you see repeatedly these references to Ukrainian atrocities that are being committed. Now, some of those actually were documented early on. There were there was video uh, that I think was confirmed of Ukrainian soldiers after capturing uh, Russian POWs in one. They were just systematically shooting each one of them in the knee, even though they were already captive. Uh, there was another video where they seemed to be actually killing them. I, I haven't I haven't seen that much of this stuff, but but it does it does turn up on kind of pro-Russia Twitter. And I don't know uh, what to make about. I'll give you a couple of examples. Maybe you, I don't know how much time you spend on social media, whether you follow the same people. One example was within the last couple of weeks, it was a video of like a pit. There were two bodies already. A third body was being dropped in the pit. That initially surfaced via the kind of Russians with attitude, you know, the pro-Russia side Twitter. Um, and they said, this, Ukrainians are doing this. And then they said two days later, oh, wouldn't you know it? Now they're claiming that this was uh, Russians doing this and these are their victims of, of you know, kind of uh, extrajudicial killings um, of suspected collaborators, presumably. I, uh, and, um, and then there was a tweet uh, of there was video of this is what the tweet said. A district deputy from Ukraine brags to Ukrainian journalists how they killed many Ukrainians they considered to be, quote, enemy agents. And I don't know who the guy is, but it, it is pretty clear if the translations to be trusted. And you can hear what he's saying in his native language that he's talking to a woman and kind of, you know, with kind of a nod and a wink saying, look, we're just, you know, we suspect collaborators. We kill them. And uh, so that stuff's out there. I never know what to make of it. And there, you would, you, you would wish that there was some big, credible Western organization that saw it as their mission to sort through the stuff and figure out what's really going on. I don't, I don't think there, there is, but you're familiar with the basic challenge, right? Of trying to figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. Is there, is there a way to do it? Uh, my assumption is that the atrocities are being committed on both sides because that's what happens in war uh, as a result of the hatred that it sows between people. Um, the, I, I don't know what specific videos you're talking about. I can't watch that shit. Um, I've seen too many people killed in real life. And I don't even like to watch Hollywood, you know, violent Hollywood movies. Whenever I see those type of videos posted on social media, I really don't spend too much time looking at them. Like I said, like, I assume that both sides are committing summary executions. Both sides are torturing prisoners. That's what happens in every single war. Um, and, um, you know, I think the idea, in some ways, this is taking it, I'm not sure if this is where you meant to go with the question, but the idea that you could do a war uh, where one side is playing by some, some sort of uh, just war principles and conducting itself in a purely professional way, um, that's a very uh, American idea. And it's also, in some ways, a very dangerous idea, because I think all of our elites and our institutions assume that we can go and prosecute these wars in like a professional and like a professional and ethical basis. But that's not what war is. War is mass murder, mechanized mass murder that's carried out by one side against another. Um, and if you resort to that, there really is no way of maintaining your purity and your side's uh, innocence. So I, I have not, no doubt at all that the Russians, just like the, um, that's why I didn't waste much time worrying about like Buka. There have been some reports that, that 
that, that what we were reading out of Buka wasn't entirely as it was being presented. I didn't waste any time on, on looking down those rabbit holes because, of course, the Russians are committing summary executions, if not in Buka, somewhere else. They're, I'm sure they're doing horrible things all over the place, just like the Ukrainians are, um, including the mo- most horrific type of torture that you don't even want to describe verbally. That's what's happening. That's why I think it's so imperative to bring a stop to this war. Yeah. I mean, I think there are differences in ethos in different militaries, right? Differences of degree. It's like, it's hard to find a war where you know atrocities in Vietnam. We all know about the, the My Lai massacre. But I'll, I'll give you an example. Like, you know, these Russians with attitude guys, you know, one of the pro-Russian sources I follow, um, they were saying uh, back during the Mariupol uh, thing that, uh, well, you can see why they're not surrendering the Ukrainians because like if they're captured by Russian soldiers, they'll probably be okay. That's the that's the tradition. They'll be taken as prisoners of war. But if they're captured uh, by the forces of the Donetsk uh, People's Republic, I guess I guess Mariupol's in Donetsk. But uh, like they'll probably just be taken out and killed. Uh, and 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 now maybe these guys had undue pride in the honor of Russian soldiers. Who knows? The Russian. Uh, on the other hand, they're sympathetic to the Donetsk separatists as well. I think I think there are these differences of uh, of ethos in different militaries. At the same time, I think, in my experience, you're hard pressed to find a war that goes on for any length of time where both sides scrupulously and always obey, you know, the laws of of war. Yeah, it seems impossible for that to be the case. Um... When, you know, if you've been in a battle and you've had your friends killed or you've been under a constant threat of, of violent death for, for days or weeks on end, I mean, the pressure, the hatred that builds up against your opponent, your desire to do horrible, horrible things to him once you get him in, defenseless in your hands seems to be to be irresistible. That's part of the reason why war is so sickening and why civilized people should do everything they can to eradicate it instead of doing the opposite of what our governments do, which is actively foment it and try to create as much of it as possible in order to profit from it. Yeah. The, uh, no, it's, it's, uh, it's true. And you, and, and I mean, you know, it's like the Milai massacre was completely horrible. I still can't imagine doing what they actually did in that village, but I do, I, I can understand, like, if you're in a situation where, your friends are getting blown up by landmines. You can't tell the civilians from the soldiers, you know, in Vietnam. It's like everyone is a substitute. You don't speak the language. Everyone in every village may be wanting to kill you. That kind of situation is not conducive to decent behavior. I still, I still like to think I could not possibly do what they did, which was just round up a village and kill everybody. But yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, who among us can say, if we haven't been to war, how bad we'd get? Uh, or if we've never, I've never even had my life seriously threatened. Well, that's why it's so important, in my view, to, to avoid it in the first place. And so many of these wars are avoidable. You know, even Vietnam, it was before I was born. But from what I understand, Vietnam was totally avoidable. And all the slaughter that happened there and all the hatred and killing could have been avoided. Uh, just like it could have been in Iraq, just like it could have been in Afghanistan just like it could have been in Ukraine. These are political choices that our supposedly elected leaders make, and they're not at all disturbed by this, these horrors and this bloodshed. Um, it doesn't figure in their calculations at all, from what I can tell. Yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, I do... Uh, 
I do think human psychology makes it easy to convince yourself that you are being scrupulous and moral and yet favor a war. And there, there are times when it's hard not to favor one, right? I mean, you can, there are famous historical examples of, well, what are you going to do once this happens? Uh, I just, uh, I just wish we'd work a little harder to, uh, to avoid them. I guess the final question is just, uh, do you think the, uh, I mean, you, you're, you're not as old as I am. Uh, I've now seen coverage of a lot of wars. Uh, and I'm trying to remember how this compares with coverage of other wars. Of course, <clears throat> late in the Vietnam War, the press basically turned against the war. Mm-hmm. So, you ha- so you had basically the opposite of what you're seeing now. But I don't know. What, what is your, well, well, for example, Iraq. So you've been in Syria as a correspondent. You've been in Iraq as a, as a member of the military. Uh, so I guess my last question to you would be, how do you, uh, is this any different, uh, the way this war is being covered compared to those in the West? No, unfortunately, it's exactly the same, which is that our enemies are on the run, that, that, our, that our forces are surging, uh, that we've got this new plan, uh, and that, you know, just hang in there a little while longer. Uh, and, and, and there's going to be a, a massive victory. That's the, they don't always say that outright, but that's sort of the assumption that's always in the background. It's always this sort of like invigorating drumbeat of coverage designed to make you think that the enemy is on the ropes. Uh, and that just goes on for years and years at a time. The body count just mounts and mounts, and it just sort of fades. It never really ends. It just fades from the headlines. That's what happened in Iraq. That's what happened in Afghanistan. And I imagine that's what hap- will happen in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean Iraq and, and Syria are are still not fundamentally at peace, especially Syria. I guess. No, Syria is exactly the same as it was when I was there. And well, I don't want to say exactly, I don't want to exaggerate, but you know what I mean. I, the last time I was there was in uh, 2018, and from what from what I'm, I know, it's it's, it's the same. The, the lines are exactly the same. There's still fighting going on. Uh, all the cities are still destroyed and littered with landmines, and we'll see the same frozen conflict in Ukraine, no matter how long the war lasts most likely you're going to see that the Russians will maintain control over Luhansk and, 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 and Donetsk and the whole um, Donbass. It's very unlikely that the lines will change much from where they were on April 30th of this year, and they can fight for another five years, another 10 years, and kill another million people, and it probably won't substantially change that. And But you know what? That's okay from the point of U.S. war planners, in my view. Uh, and again, here we go again, ascribing motives, uh, but you know, Julian Assange, I think, had the single most trenchant uh, comment, whether you love him or hate him, I think had the single most trenchant comment over the, over the whole war on terror uh, era, which was about the war in Afghanistan. And he said that the point is not to win the war. The point is to have an endless war. And I think that applies with equal force here in Ukraine. The point is not to win, it's to have this go on indefinitely. And I think you could even find people in state or CIA or DIA or JSOC or the White House, wherever, who would tell you, frankly, yeah, we want to extend this as long as we can and bleed Russia dry, to have them send more and more troops to go and die on the Donbass front line, send more material to be blown up by drones, et cetera. And as longer it goes on, the better, I think is realistically their point of view. You Have you talked to people who actually talk that way? Um, aren't there people that are quoted in effectively saying that? 
Well, there's things like, uh, you know, Secretary of Defense said our goal is to weaken Russia, but but they haven't. They, they I mean, I guess I would say I, I, I would like to think that in this case, the possibility of nuclear war has become prominent enough that there's actually some people in the White House saying, how do we wind this thing down? You would have to think so. And I'm glad you mentioned that um, because I know you got to go. But, you know, you mentioned the midterms not too, uh, not too long ago. And you've got to think that this talk about nuclear war and World War Three is just killing the Democrats uh, among likely voters. Because there was just a poll out yesterday that showed that New York Times showed that the, actually the Republicans are now in, in, the, in the they didn't they ask any questions mm-hmm. about Ukraine. They only asked them about the economy. But just in the very limited aperture that I have in my personal life, like I feel there's been a real sea shift, sea uh, change now, a real shift now that people are seriously talking about nuclear war. Now all of a sudden people are waking up and saying, "Wait a minute, mm-hmm. what's this Ukraine business? Are you talking seriously talking about nuclear war over here?" Even just like political pod or non-political podcasts that I listen to or just YouTube videos, you see it popping up more and more into the consciousness of regular people and around a dinner time type conversations. You're now starting to hear things really turn against the administration when if they're seriously going to put us all in danger of nuclear war. So. For that reason alone, I think that they they ought to be incentivized to to make moves towards peace. Yeah, and I'm not sure, uh, not that I'm a political advisor or strategist, but I'm not sure it's smart for Biden shortly before the midterms to say, we've never been this close to nuclear Armageddon, and I have no idea what to do about it. Madness. Right, right. You're just the guy I want leading my country, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's why if I sound to your audience that people have never heard me talk before, never read in my work. If I sound really distempered right now uh, or really embittered, it's for that reason. That's what's changed my own perspective of the conflict is the, is the, is the apparently real possibility of nuclear war. Yeah. Uh, so that is something that's new. And I think that demands our, our, our attention. In that sense, a frozen conflict is a hopeful scenario relative <laughs> to. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's, it's actually true that if you ask what might uh, lead Russia to resort to a tactical nuke, I think it would be a rapid rollback of of. Uh, of the, the territory they control by Ukrainian troops toward the border, but uh, which you're not predicting. But uh, well, 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 they had better not. And, you know, I, if, in case it hasn't come across, across strongly enough, like for Vladimir Putin to even talk about the use of nuclear weapons makes him an enemy, not just of the Ukrainians, but of the whole human race. And for, for him and for any of the Russian leadership to be threatening the use of nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear, so what have you, this is totally unacceptable for the Russians to do that just like it's totally unacceptable for our government to talk seriously about retaliation. Um, the nuclear weapons must remain absolutely taboo and there must be no use of them by, by either side. That has got to be the view of any sane, rational, humanitarian observer to this conflict, no matter what side you're on. Okay, good place to end. So uh, where can people find your work? What's your Twitter handle? Uh, at Seth Harp Esquire is my Twitter handle. S-E-T-H. H, two H's, A-R-P, so the way your name is spelled. And then E-S-Q, pretty fancy, good. Just because, hey, you know what, Seth Harp was already taken uh, by, a, <laughs> by a sports conference. So you one up the guy. <laughs> hey, you know what, I was born in a trailer park here in Texas. I'm going to rock that Esquire as long as I can. <laughs> that's, uh, but that's where, what tra- yeah. where, where, where were, were you? you're in Austin now. Were you born in the Austin area? Yes, yes, I was. The, that the um, the trailer park in question no longer exists. It was called the Grove Court. It was actually a trailer court, a little, a little bit fancier. Mm-hmm. Um, it was over That's here. why there's an Esquire after your name. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, I like that.
Um, but yeah, find me on Twitter. Uh, I usually write for Rolling Stone. I also write for Harper's, um, other outlets. That's definitely the best place to, to follow my work. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks for this, Seth. Very, very interesting conversation. Maybe we'll check in down the road. Thank you, Bob. Let's do it again sometime. Okay.